Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanges. This week, my guest is Felicia Fifi Smith. Fifi is a visual anthropologist, University of Michigan graduate, and co-founder CEO of the boutique image consulting firm FTA Gallery. She is also an immigrant who moved here as a child with her family as they were fleeing war in her native Liberia. Fifi and I discussed everything from her perspective on being black in America without the weight of slavery, to the racial, ethnic, and religious disparities in this country, and how her views have changed as she's gotten older. I promise it's not as heavy as it sounds. We do have some laughter as well. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Well, I'm so glad we're doing this because I know I had, we had kind of touched on it before with everything that we had talked about. Yeah. But now we're finally here. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm looking forward to this. I've never done anything like this before. So yeah. I'm like. I'm breaking your podcast virginity. Your yeah. podcast virginity. But you know what? Honestly, like that's really what the whole podcast is about, right? It's not about people like who are always doing podcasts. There's yeah. been a lot of people who've been on the podcast that this is their first time. But to me, that's why I do it because and there's so many stories that have not been told, that have not been shared, that are worthy of being shared, that need to be shared. But that's because we need to take the time to talk to everyday people, right? It doesn't, you don't necessarily need to be a celebrity. You don't necessarily need to be influencer or whatever. I mean, those are, those are all great and I'm open to everybody, but I also have made it a mission of mine to be able to talk to people who aren't a celebrity as well and not necessarily like I want it to be a good combination of all of those because we all have stories to share. Just because you're not, you know, rich, famous and whatever doesn't mean that you don't have a story that needs, that doesn't need to be told. Yeah, I totally agree. Yay, you're here. So before we get into all the chisme, right, uh, we get into the wine. So I'm going to let you share the wine that you're drinking right now first. Okay. I have this Santa Cristina 2016. I think it's a rosé. It's right here. Yes, love. Uh, so my friend actually brought this over a few nights ago. And it says it's Italian wine, notes of cherry. It's a rosé. I mean, it's to me, it's a daytime wine. Hey, ro we're both drinking rosé today. So yeah. rosé all day because I'm drinking a Simi Sonoma Valley 
Dry Rosé 2017. And, you know, in Southern California, it's been hot, especially for us, right? And even in San Diego, uh, it's for us, it's hot. It's like in the 80s. <laughs> uh, it's like, so this one is like strawberries, raspberries. It's like citrusy. It says it's peach strawberry mineral finish. So a bit tart, which kind of makes me, you know, and obviously it's I love how dry. this one is not too sweet. Yeah. So salud. Salud. Ooh, yeah, because it said it was strawberry and watermelon, and I can definitely taste that. Yeah, this one, all of a sudden, there's notes of cherry, a crisp aroma fragrance, that's what it says. Well, so. you know, I've realized doing this, and because I used to be kind of like, I only like red wine, right? But I've realized is it doesn't really matter if it's red, white, or rosé. What matters is you start figuring out what your own palette is. Yeah. To know. Red. That's that's what my palette is. Yeah. So, you know, if you know what type of rosés, what type of whites you like, what type of reds you like, really, it's not about being like, you know, oh, I'm such a wine snob and I only drink. No, no, no. There's a lot of really great wines out there that cross the spectrum Right. It's just finding the types that you like that's going to fit your yeah. palate. So I've definitely learned that because in the beginning episodes, you could hear me be like, oh, I normally don't like whites or I normally <laughs> try to be all whatever. Well, I feel like for each different color, you have a favorite. Right. So like when it's white, I like Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. Red, I like Cabernet, you know. Yeah. So I think that's like what I've come to versus like, oh, no, I only drink. Right? <laughs> no, totally. But even within that, they're all different, right? Because depending on where the wine is made, the soil is different, which causes the, the flavor of the grapes that, that they're harvested. They taste different depending on the area. So we can't be as snobby as we think we are. like <laughs> Yes. On top of that, I just, so I got even into drinking wine because I used to work at, was it a Chihuascaria, like um, Texas Day Brazil? Oh, yeah, yeah, Chihuascaria. So I used to work there and we used to like have to sell wine. So that's when I was like, because before I'm like, whatever, like I hate the way wine tastes. I don't like wine. Mm -hmm. I had to start selling it. So we had to start sampling it all the time. And I was like, hmm, I could get with it. <laughs> well, girl, let's get with the chisme now. <laughs> so your full name is felicia but i thought like your friends and you know you got introduced to me as fifi so that's what i refer to you as <laughs> i'm super excited because you have a really unique perspective in regards to kind of everything you're an immigrant you immigrated from liberia you grew up in Michigan, yeah. you like, you just have a very unique perspective. So I'm really, really excited. I cannot wait to like get into all of it. <laughs> but let's start with like, where like immigrating from Liberia, because you weren't born here, you did actually like, you are an immigrant yeah. to this country. Mm -hmm. So how old were you? And what's kind of the backstory of your parents moving and okay, um, so Liberia had a 20 year civil war going on, which I think it started in the early eighties and then, um, it like calmed down for a little bit. 
and then picked back up in, I want to say, like, 94-ish. So when my brother, because I have a brother who's two years older than me, when he was, like, you know, like, being born and growing up, and by 96, which was the year I was born, it just got, like, that's when it was, like, full-out, like, civil war. Charles Taylor, who was, like, the leader of the civil war and I guess like on the, the bad guy side, he was pretty much like trying to like dictate Liberia. So my parents who they, they too were like born and raised in Liberia. They like, obviously like had to flee. So I was born. My dad always tells me like, while I was being born, cause I was born in my grandma's house, like rockets were literally fly, uh, like flying. Oh my gosh. Seriously. Yeah. So I, <laughs> had like the full like like I sometimes joke and say I'm a war baby but I am like I was literally born in the middle of a civil war mm-hmm. and um when I was like six months to a year old my grandma like so my dad's mom had moved to the states and my dad moved to the states with his mom to like work and save up and then he, like two years later when I was three, sent for me and my mom to come to the States. And then afterwards, my mom sent for my two brothers to come. So we're not like officially refugees, but we were a part of the group of millions of Liberia that uh, Liberians that fled Liberia during the war because the war didn't officially end until like 2004, I think. Mm-hmm. So when your dad came with, did he come like on a a visa or how did he come over? Or Oh, he came in the beginning on a visa. But my, so a part of the reason why my grandma was one of the first ones to leave is because in Liberia, my father's family was like more um, like of the like affluent side. So when the civil war was going on, those were the people that they were coming after. So my grandma was like a big principal my great-grandfather owned a rubber farm and my grandpa I believe he was a um, scientist so they had like already frequented the states before the war so like it wasn't my dad's first time coming to America when he came so he was able to come pretty easily and then the um, whole like immigration process started once he was here as far as like getting a green card and being legalized um, and like, as far as even like my immigration process as a child, I didn't really know or like care or pay attention to it. Cause I did come here so young, right. right. I came here at three. So I grew up pretty American as far as like socially, but I was still an immigrant and I didn't really, it didn't like come to perspective to me until for my senior trip, cause my school, uh, my high school, we were going to Europe for our senior trip. And that's when, like, my mom found out, like, oh, my papers had expired. I'm about to turn 18. So she wants to file for my citizenship. And that's how I became, like, a U.S. citizen. So what was your, because obviously you were really young when you came over. Mm-hmm. So what was your, or what, did your parents ever talk about what, even though your dad had visited frequently, visiting mm-hmm. is different than living, right? Yeah. So what or did they ever discuss like what their expectation of what life in the U.S. was going to be like versus what it actually was? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. So even like now when I go back and visit Liberia, everyone thinks that like the United States is like this gold mine, which in some aspects I do agree. But they think like everyone here is rich 
And, you know, just like the whole American, like the whole like idea of the American dream. Um, Cause obviously like my dad, when they were coming here prior to, they were only vacationing. So that everything he experienced was like enjoyment, right? Like yeah, and having fun. But as far as like coming out here and from where like my father came from, which was like I said, affluence. And like my dad grew up with maids and you know, all of that and the war, my grandma and grandpa and my father, like, they lost everything. So it was just like coming out here and starting and trying to start from zero and mm-hmm. just working um, when I was younger. And cause my parents, they were like in their, they were still in like their late twenties. So like my dad, he like worked, at um like a nursing home he worked at um a home with like troubled kids and then he was like also still going to school like while this was going on and like so was my mom like my mom worked at like a call center when she first came while still going to school while still like taking all this money and still sending it back to like the family that's still experiencing this war so i definitely think it was completely different even now like that my mom has like her life is like totally transformed and everything. She's still like no one wants to stay in America and work their entire life because that's like what the realization was when they came here. It's like you come here, you work, you pay bills, and she feels like you work, pay bills, and die versus like what they probably thought before the states, which was you know just this American dream and you like yeah. go to those flags and stuff. <laughs> so. Right. I I mean I agree with that. I- I was talking to somebody about this, and I don't know if I brought this up in a, in a previous podcast or not. There were a couple years ago during the Super Bowl, there was this commercial, and I think it was a car commercial, where the guy came out. He's like, "We're Americans. We only take to like basically flaunting, like it's flaunting the fact that we are we work, we live to work, mm-hmm. that we don't work to live." Right. That's kind of the American dream is to work to live. Right. But we, yeah. that's not how we live. We live to work. And a lot, it's just gotten into our collective fabric that that's what we do. And I think so many people are trying to break away from that and really like eyes are being opened in regards to where did where did that actually start? Right. Yeah. Because the people that hold wealth, they don't work. They don't. To, no, yeah. they don't work to live. Never. So how did that get passed along to you? And what was your view? Because even though like you're young, so you're experiencing life as like an American, even though you're an immigrant. Mm -hmm. And how was was there like a push and pull between, you know, you're an immigrant, but you feel very American and your parents are still immigrants and they they're going, wait, this is not what we expected. Yeah. Um, So. Definitely. So my at home culture, because my uh, my mom's mom, so my grandma on my mom's side, she came like to take care of us because my parents were literally like young, not children, but you know still like young adults mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out in this new country. So my grandma took care of us for a very long time. So my upbringing, as far as like my home life, was always very African ate food every day like didn't really eat out I didn't really even start experiencing like American cuisine until I was like older in my high school years so we ate the food and we were taught you know like the culture the cultural beliefs and one of those beliefs that my dad instilled in me was 
like hard work and it's essentially like what you want out of life you just like you work to get it so I'd say like my parents it was always about growing up it was like education 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 they definitely 100% believed like you had to have a college degree to be successful like period that was the number one thing I was taught was education and the second thing was like hard work and I, as far as my mom, she always like preached kindness because like being like here in your, in like, in like a new country in your twenties and you have like no friends, like a very small amount of family. She was just saying like, you essentially never know what anyone's going through. So just always be kind, like don't be mean. So that's, I would say those are the three biggest values my parents instilled in me, which is like hard work, education and kindness. I think so many people, so so many, I think, immigrant families, that's what they kind of come in. Hard work, believe, yeah. education, kindness. And that sometimes is very hard in our in, in our country, right? Because yeah. we're not seeing a lot of, we're seeing instances of kindness. And then we're seeing instances of the complete opposite these days, yeah. which is. And respect. That was, that's like, my mom was all about the kindness. And my dad is all about the respect. Even when like. Cause I grew, I grew up with an attitude and like a mouth. So my dad was always like, you know, like just basically saying, and now I understand it. Like that now I'm like graduated college out of high school and like grew up, like if you want to be respected, like you have to respect people, even like when they're disrespecting you. Cause he always told me it shows more character when you can like be disrespected Mm -hmm. and like still obtain, you know, character so a big thing and I'm sure it is amongst like all immigrant families is like honor and when I when I literally graduated college my dad was like Fifi you didn't shame me (laughs) and that's what it's about like you it's all about like the family name maintaining that honor that respect yeah you know that image so growing up and even still now it's like in some aspects I know that's superficial but I definitely like understand now yeah. No, I get that to a certain extent because it was always like, I just wanted my parents to be proud of me. Right. Yeah. And if my, especially my dad, cause my dad is, he was <laughs> growing up. He was very like the silent type where I had friends who had been friends, my friends for years and they didn't know if my dad liked them because he wasn't very, like, yeah. he's loosened up now and everything. But my mom could tell me she's proud of me all day. And I'm like, Oh, thanks mom. Blah, blah, blah. My dad tells me he's proud of me and I'm in tears. Yeah. Right. There's just something about, you know, especially if you're not really like, I didn't grow up really, really tight with my dad either. So, but it was always like, I felt like no matter what I did, my mom would always see, like always try and find the good. And I was always like, I was working to make my dad proud more than anybody. So the day he told me that he was really proud of me. And then he told my mom one time, not and I and I don't hear this from my dad. He tells my mom, and then my mom relays oh, the yeah. information. <laughs> That's how it always is. <laughs> that to not worry about me because I always find a way to work. Like if things aren't going right, that I always find a way to make it. I always work it out. Yeah. That apparently he told my mom, Jay's scrappy. Jay knows what she's doing. She's strong. She can. She'll figure out. Out. She always does. Which my family doesn't call me Jessica. They call me Jay. They don't know what my family calls me Jessica. So I get that. Like, you know, you say you didn't shame me and my dad's like, and for me, it's like that I'm proud of you. And you're like, yeah. yes, 
I've made it. Yeah, no, <laughs> it doesn't go away no matter what the age, I'll tell you. Yeah, no, especially because I dropped out of college twice. So there were many opportunities for him to be shamed. So wait, did you, was it, was, cause you graduated from the University of Michigan. Yeah. So was it twice you dropped out of University of Michigan? No. So, I mean, my school journey in itself is like another like crazy journey. Cause when I graduated. Give us I, the abbreviated craziness, girl. <laughs> yes. When I graduated, I wanted to move, right? Mm-hmm. Um, cause I grew up in Minnesota, but I went to high school in Michigan. So, um, it's like I spent half of my life in Minnesota and then like the, adolescent like how is that because there's not a lot of black people in minnesota right (laughs) you'd be surprised there is a huge liberian community really and there's a huge african community i don't know why that is but there are like a lot of somalians ethiopians there's a huge chinese and like asian um population in wow i would have never guessed that exactly so it wasn't obviously it wasn't like Detroit where it's like strictly like mostly black people, mm-hmm. but it was there were enough minorities in Minnesota. So I grew up in Monticello, Minnesota. I had like a Native American black and white best friend. Like she was like all those. And then I had um, a Mexican best friend. Um, I had an Asian best friend and a white best friend in like middle school. So moving to Detroit was to me like that was a culture shock where it's like wow like I'm not the only black person because before when it was me interacting with black people it would literally only be like me interacting with the Liberian community or like the few random black kids that were like placed in my school because they're well in my school district because there weren't more than 20 and two of those were my brothers and like one of one of them were like my cousins and stuff so Um, I've I've experienced both sides. Like, yeah, I was about to ask you, like, how's that feel? Because you're from a very like Liberian community. You're saying there's a very close knit, but when you meet or when you start interacting with people that don't have that are not from Africa, let me just let me let me be very specific Mm because right that aren't like you didn't immigrate. Their parents aren't from Africa. They are several generations American. Because obviously there's a history and everything, but there's, so you don't have that. You have, I'm sure you have your own generational trauma that has gone through. I mean, obviously being born in during wartime, that's its own trauma that I'm sure has been imparted, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it, black people in America have their own generational trauma in regards to slavery in regards to segregation, in regards to voter suppression and all of these things. So how did you realize that what your history, your history is very, very different Mm -hmm. than um, like somebody who is born in this country, who has several years of learning about their history from basically being shipped and sold from Africa to the States and what, like, how did you kind of learn about that? And how did you, cause yours is not, yours is very, very different. Yours yeah, is um, very, very different with this country. For me, honestly, I didn't learn about it until college. When I say learn about it, I don't mean like, I didn't know like slavery exists. I'm not saying that. I'm saying like, I didn't dive deep into it as far as like, even like learning about like, black 
figures and like truly deeply learning about black history until my senior year of high school moving into college because in full transparency growing up in minnesota like i said majority of the children there are white like it's not uh, like a hundred percent like black power at all. Like right. I don't, I literally do not have one memory of like middle or elementary school doing anything centered around African-American history at all. And then moved to Michigan, which is like, whoa, a huge color shock. Now I'm actually having like black friends and it's crazy. And people always think it's crazy when I say this, that was my culture shock because I'm like used to, Everything being multicultural, like not necessarily used to being colorblind, but like race wasn't a thing for me. My best friend, like she says it all the time. You're the one who made me even like care about other cultures because she was all about like she was about everything black. And then here I am and I'm like, oh, let's go talk to this kid and people that, you know, don't necessarily look like me. Mm -hmm. So when I got into um, college and I actually started learning and taking classes I'm like oh like these are the things that interest me and I want to know more about it so I really literally took until for me to get into college to dive like dive deep into it and once I started learning I obviously like couldn't stop because I'm like there's so much and I've always been a history geek and it's just too, so, it's it. so crazy that I didn't actually start learning about like my like distant cousin's history you know because that's essentially to me what African-Americans are they're like still like distant cousins and they still like come from Africa. So right. why would I not know about this part of history? So now I'm like well-educated and like read up on like, just like the history of that. Cause I'm just like, okay, I need to know like what's going on, especially with people who look like me. Cause oftentimes people can't even tell the difference, you know, like no one's like going around saying like, Oh, you're Liberian and Spanish because my mom. Girl, was like, that's what happens here. With you know, like exactly. within the within our community is going around saying yeah, that. We'll get somebody saying, "Oh, you're Honduran, you're Mexican, you're exactly. like." We get lumped in all together. Exactly. So it's, I just feel like one, it's my duty as an one an advocate and just to, to a black person to like know the history and to clear the narratives that also exist within immigrant communities. Because literally, like with my parents being immigrants and them experiencing, you know, the trauma of war and the trauma of being like displaced as young adults, like my dad mm -hmm. literally always says this. He was, he feels like he was still a child when the war started. Oh, and I can was, imagine. Um, like my dad graduated high school when he was 17 and then a, a war started. So he didn't have he, time to grow up. Yeah, so their feelings and thoughts of on like how things go in America are a hundred percent different than mine are now. But that was like the narrative I grew up with was, oh well, if you want something in life, like make it happen. If you don't make it happen, it's because you don't work hard. And if something isn't going right for like these people, it's because they didn't work hard enough. So definitely, I feel like it's my duty now to like help change that narrative and bring understanding to like within my immigrant community. So I want to kind of touch back on something that you said earlier, because you were, I know you said that it wasn't your culture shock was going from a very white community that had a little bit of diversity. And those are the people that felt like it seems like those are the people you the other diverse people were the people that you were most drawn to, it seemed like. Yeah. And then going into like a mostly all black community. 
when you are still in Minnesota, do you, and you didn't have these experiences of like real, like black history month and all these things, like really dive deep into any of that. Do you feel as we, that the people that were, that were diverse within the community, do you feel like they just, or, and did you kind of hide within yourself to just not make waves or do not feel different? Do you, did you ever feel like that? Like you had to kind of just, not like kind of be quiet, right? Like be in your shell in order to not feel like you're different when you're, there's a few people of color within this all white community. Um, I don't think so. Uh, especially considering that I was so young, like as a child, I definitely was more open and more adventurous as a kid and more open to learning. I just think that I honestly wasn't presented with those opportunities to learn about those things. Or if I did learn, it was like the generic things that we learn every year during Black History Month. Like, and those things being like Martin Luther King, I had a dream, like a little mention of Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, like Thurgood Marshall. Those few figures, those few Black figures were literally what I was taught. And and we're taught with them with the white lens. Yes, especially with the white lens. So it one, I don't think it was enough content for me to even like put anything into perspective as like a like a twelve year old, right. you know. But I also it wasn't enough content, and it also like definitely probably wasn't enough care. Like it's not like you know because there are two different ways that like Black history can be taught. It was literally like straight out the book or like the word of mouth, which is what living in Detroit has like allowed me to hear with me working at the Detroit Public Library and like older black people coming in and like saying like, oh, we lived through the riots, we lived through segregation. So it may have just been the contact, like I may have just not have come in contact with enough Mm -hmm. African-Americans to even have like a a ounce of that knowledge. Right. Because I've definitely always been like open to learning and I'd say that's probably why I always like linked on to other minorities because like it's like okay this is your culture I share like I share mine with you you share yours with me and we both get to try like different foods get to do different things that was all I was about okay so speaking of food really quick (laughs) question please do not hate me for asking this question I really am just curious because I don't know I know like the various countries in Africa but I can't remember everything is right I have a hard enough time with all the states in the United States. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to put a whole other continent in front of me. And I, I can't remember where everything is, except like Mozambique, like <laughs> Africa, <laughs> Ethiopia, like those I kind of know. Like where in the continent is Liberia? Okay. So let's say, because Africa is like this. Right. So, so she's holding her palm down, facing downward. Yeah. So Africa is like this. Liberia is on the coast of West Africa, 500 miles away from the equator. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that close. Yeah. Okay. So it's like, here's Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Nigeria's, you know, like a little bit like in like this in, uh-huh. part. But yeah, Liberia is right off the coast. It's very small. They say it's actually smaller than Michigan. So it's small. Then if you're doing Michigan, you change your hand up <laughs> yeah exactly so <laughs> i have friends from michigan that's how i know that <laughs> <laughs> Liberia is smaller than michigan and there are 
population of like two or three million people now. Oh, so wow. very, very small country. Um, the only reason I ask is because I've not experienced a ton of African food. I've eaten Ethiopian food, which I absolutely love. I don't, I need to find a place here in Sandy. I used to, in Dallas, I lived walking distance, like literally maybe five, less than 500 steps away from an Ethiopian restaurant. That was so good. But I know just, I mean, it's a different, it's a whole continent with several countries in it. It's not even just like United States. We're one country with several states and every region has their own food and identity and everything like that. So that's why I was asking like East Coast, West Coast, because there's obviously a lot of different um, variations within food and culture and everything like that. Oh, so. yes. Liberia has the best food, though. And okay, well, uh, who's going to make some food so I could go? I could go. I know how to make the Liberian food. So you, when you, when you're in LA, just stop by and I will make a bowl of pepper soup. All the African countries, and this is not even like a culture bias. They're literally like in Philly where there's another like big African community. They mm-hmm. have jollof rice competitions. Yeah. Liberia wins like jollof rice, which is like, um, like mixture of rice. It has like different meats in it, seasoned, mm-hmm. sometimes vegetables. But they like, I guess like each West African country makes their own version of it. Uh-huh. And every year there's a competition and each year Liberia wins <laughs> to the point where they had to literally take out Liberia because no one else was winning. Are you yes. serious? Yes. So this is a fact. Liberia has the best food. All right. Well, that's just I'm letting you know that I'm giving my notice. Come on, because I'm going to make it because the thing is people will try the other foods and they'll be like, mm, this is good. Like, no, it's. Liberians, Liberians make sure. Okay. I mean, I'm not joking. I'm not kidding. I'm going to be, I'm going to call you and be like, Fifi, Saturday night or Sunday, what's better? You tell me. I'll be here because I have to represent. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, and then like when you come down to San Diego, I'll make Mexican food. Yes. I just actually made the other day. Third favorite food. Yeah. I saw the other day I made, had a friend come over and I made, you know, homemade tacos, rice, beans, salsa, the whole thing. And here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I do not buy my taco shells. Like, yes, obviously, girl, the corn. you either do. Yeah, you're always using corn. So if you're going to make tacos, you either do the soft tacos, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do hard, t- hard shell tacos, you do not buy your ta- taco shells. You make those yourself. Yes. So when you come down to San Diego, I'll make you some Mexican food. Yes. <laughs> I know I literally love Mexican food like which Japanese food is my first favorite food not being African food like obviously but it's Japanese and then like my favorite dish though and I literally had to stop myself because I used to eat like a steak taco almost every day one summer and I gained like 10 pounds so I literally yeah, like, to calm yourself down. I like steak tacos are literally like my favorite. Once I started having them authentically made, because when like I would eat it like the American way, I didn't like tacos at all. And then I like ran into this place. Like you had carne asada tacos. Yes. And I had them like made like the real authentic way and I couldn't stop. I literally went into that place almost every day for one summer. I'm sure it's the same, right, with Liberian food and with Mexican food and stuff. Even every house does some their own way of doing things, right? 
So like the way I make tacos is the way my grandma and my mom and because my grandma had 10 kids. So if you don't have a lot of money and you have meat, what are you going to do to make like to fill your tacos? You're going to put so she put potatoes in them. Oh, so it's like ground beef and pampas or potatoes. Right. You mix that and then you fill it and you fry it. So that's how I like my mom makes it. And that's how I make it. But every household. So a lot of people in my family, if we make tacos, like from my grandma's side, we all are very similar in the way that we make tacos. Right. Because that's how my grandma made them. So every place is a little bit different. Every place, like every person makes their rice a little bit different. Every I'm of the mindset of the darker, the orange, red, mm-hmm. the rice, the better it is, the better the flavor is. Oh, yeah. Because if it's real light, I'm like, mm, it's not going to be good. I totally agree with that because I've seen some Mexican rice that's like slightly still white. And I'm like, what is this like? Did you not have enough sauce? <laughs> yes. That's hilarious. So, okay, I want to go back because we're going to get off food. <laughs> but you say you dropped out of school twice. So, Give me like, how, like, what was the breaks? Like, what made you drop out? And then what made you find? Yeah, I see you pouring the rest of that wine, girl. I see you pouring the rest of that wine. And then what made you finally go back? And when you went back, did you change? Because you graduated in anthropology. You're a visual anthropologist, which you're going to have to explain what a visual anthropologist is. But yeah. like, what were, what made you take those breaks to drop out? And what was the final like catalyst saying, no, I want to go back and I want to go back for anthropology. Okay. So originally when I graduated high school, I wanted to leave Michigan and I had got into some schools in New York. I got into NYU and I'm like, okay, well, sh- like I want to go here. But my parents literally told me like, we can't afford it. Right. So last minute, like probably on, it was this, this day called decision day like in Michigan. Right. So it's like when everyone just like goes and like, Colleges, colleges approve you on site. So a lot of the kids in my school were going to Michigan State, and I literally wanted to leave. <laughs> That's just basically what I'm was. Yeah. I wanted to leave, so I went to the school where like the least amount of kids that like went to my high school went because I went to like a really small high school and I was over it. I'm like not like a small town girl, so I'm like I want to go. I want to get away from these people, and I want to like make my own life, right? And my best friend, she decided to go to that school too. So I was there and I went and I majored in chemical engineering for the sake of my parents. <laughs> and way over my head. <laughs> yeah. And then like, no, wasn't feeling that. And then I changed to uh, business. I think I was like marketing. And then I failed an economics course. I was pretty much like by the end of like my first year, I'm like, okay, basically I'm trying to like tell my mom, like maybe my child go to school for like communications or journalism or like English. Cause I had a really good like mentor in high school that like showed me all these books and I'm like, okay, maybe like, all right, I want to do that. So my parents were like, and by this time I wasn't getting any financial aid either. So my parents were like, no, if you're going to do that, then you have to come home. Like, we're not going to pay for this. That's basically what they told me. We're not going to pay for this because they were paying for me to go to college. So then I'm like, well, if I can't do what I want to do, then I'm not going to school. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of how I've just always been. If I can't do what I want to do, I'm probably not going to do it. 
You're not going to put in the effort at all. So just fast forward with me, like, okay, whatever. I'm going to get back into school and do whatever. I did that for like a month. I enrolled in like another class because I'm like, okay, well, they don't want me to do like writing or whatever. So I'm going to go for like business again. I failed another accounting class. And I'm like, I quit again. I'm like, fuck this. So then in between between then, like I just worked and I traveled and me actually getting the opportunity to work in spaces that I would have never worked in if I would have just stayed, you know, like in college and around people my age and kind of like in that sheltered bubble, I started traveling uh, Africa, my cousin, she lived in Philly. So I was always in Philly. We were in New York, Miami, like California. And I'm like, okay, well, shoot, like I'm about to just move and like figure it out. And then um, pretty much like my dad just had a conversation with me and was like, dude, what are you going to do? Because it goes back to the education thing, like because he essentially is between these years of me not going to school, but I'm actually making great money as a waitress, which is the other crazy part. Like he's just like, you know. It's basically like a being me being a waitress wasn't a job that he would want to tell his friends. Like, despite the fact that I'm making like a thousand plus dollars a week mm-hmm. as a 19 year old, right. like I'm making money, being able to do what I want to do. He was pretty much like, you know, like, what are you going to do? And just with those few conversations and me getting tired of this, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get back into school. Then I had enrolled in the community college and I was just taking like my prereqs to get those out of the way. And then I, had this anthropology class and I literally just fell in love with it. The whole like concept of like you it's anthropology is based around people being non-biased one and being participant observers. So just the whole like feel the process, our methodology, I fell in love with it. And then I was talking to um, the professor cause I, I like loved this professor so much. I was in three of her classes she was my homegirl. I had like her personal number. We would literally just talk about like anthropology stuff, like real like cultural stuff, which is what anthropology is. Like we're studying other cultures and trying to bring a, like lights to things that would never, people don't pay attention to. So I was like, I'm trying to figure out like, what should I like do with my life? And she's like, just go into academia. Like you get to always learn and you get to do what you want. And I was like, you know what? That actually sounds great me like being in academia and like just figuring it out and so then once I was done with like my community college I transferred to University of Michigan and then here I am now (laughs) so you so I'm gonna kind of fast forward a little bit because now you live in LA Mm -hmm. with your cousin Africa yeah and you guys are the founders and owners of of FTE right I want to make sure I'm saying it right. FTA, sorry, FTA Gallery. Where does, so which you guys do publicity, mm-hmm. you guys work with a lot of artists. So what exactly does FTA, like where did the name FTA Gallery come from? Oh, so I've always been a like a visual painter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, drew, I draw, um, sketch, I paint. And that's why it was so hard for me to go to school for chemical engineering because my oh, that's a totally polar exactly. My parents spent my whole life encouraging my art dreams. So, like, I went to, I literally went to art camp. <laughs> I was in art club. Like, I was literally grew up all around arts and just being creative. So, FTA actually used to stand for 
Fifi the artist because that's how I used to sign my paintings. Ah, okay. Yes, I used to sign my paintings like that. And my freshman year of college, like I started doing like art shows and trying to sell my paintings. So that's just how I would sign it just to not like write out my whole name. Mm -hmm. Then when I dropped out of school, it turned into a blog because I had a lot of friends that did music and that were also artists. So I wanted us to have a space to just showcase our work. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to like make a website. I was a part of the Tumblr age. So everyone had a Tumblr and I'm like, okay, well, I want a website that looks like Tumblr, but it's like my own website. And I was going to show my friends stuff on it. So really just started as a hobby for me, the whole website and blog thing that I started when I was like 17, um, 18, 19, still like putting my art on there, putting my friends art on there. But then like the crowd of like my age crowd and the college crowd caught on to it and people start asking me to be on there. And then fast forward, people are asking like, how much does it cost to be on this website? And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, so Africa the whole time, she's in like Philly and New York doing her thing with fashion. And she's like trying to get into like press and just trying to find our way into this industry that honestly me and her knew since we were like, she was 12 and I was 10. Like we knew not necessarily that we were going to be famous, but like, that's like where we were meant to be. Right. <laughs> so she's like, you know, like she's figuring out her thing. And then one day she calls me cause she worked for a PR firm. Um, when she had moved to California and she calls me and I'm still like doing FCA. still like trying to like figure out my school thing out. And this is all just a hobby. And she calls me and she's like, we should make this a business. And then I'm like, a business like how? And then she's like, I want to quit this PR firm. I have all their contacts. <laughs> Like, let's do this. And then I'm like, so I really honestly dived into it like a hundred percent blind. I had never like did PR like prior to, but I still like had the part of me that like wanted to like showcase work in some sense, be a journalist, not necessarily like, I just didn't know like in what ways, where, where do all the things I like, where it's the art, the visuals, the creative fit into this world which is Africa's like press and like fashion and media where does it all merge so we found a way and like even now it's like still like a working thing like okay so how are we gonna make both of our visions like you know like fit in and where do we like fit in LA and where do we fit in this industry so that's really how it all started and then we did like our basil and I don't know everything Everything has just been, I will say, it's just so random. Everything has been so random, but like, it's kind of all like fell in place. Yeah. And, like, well, that's uh, sometimes when you know when it's meant to be. So yeah, what, what type of clients do you guys normally, because you, you're very much in the creative space, right? You're not, you guys aren't definitely traditional. You guys don't do traditional PR. It's almost like your management and PR in, in a sense. <laughs> so yeah. is it mostly because you have somebody like Mad, right? Who is a singer who is awesome. Especially like I had downloaded her album. So when I was driving up the coast, if nothing was hitting on my Apple music, it just started playing her music because I'd actually downloaded the album, which kept me sane or else I would have probably gone crazy if I didn't have some music. So you have artists, musical artists. What other types of people do you represent in regards to helping them get press and helping them expand? Because like Mad is really just that girl is exploding yeah so we because africa manages uh slick woods 
So literally like an international model. Mm-hmm. Um, we recently added to our roster Billy Abstract and Rugi. They're both visual artists. For a while now, through Africa's Contact, we had like Offset's now one of our clients. We do some brand consulting for him, and like Africa's like his main brand consultant as far as figuring out how he wants to move in fashion. Of course, we have Mad, which literally for us really showed like what we could do in PR in a sense because Matt is like indie right and yeah. versus I work with working with you know the huge artists like Offset we did some work with like Poppy and Gunna and stuff so versus working with the artists that like have already had their break I'd say like Mad was definitely what's that word like not a case study but it just really showed like what we were capable of as far as being able to like introduce this new voice and new sound like mm-hmm. into our space. So now we're in the process of essentially stepping away from the PR because that's kind of what it like turned into, which was never our focus mm-hmm. or not like what we necessarily wanted to do, you know, because right. now like people, they see that they like, see like a case study like mad where we were able to like get her all this press. So people are literally hitting us up. I'll give you like five thousand dollars if you get me this article and this article and which so, people don't understand. That's not how PR that's works. How that's PR like works. exactly. You, you, you can't just say, "Oh yes, okay, yeah, I'm gonna get it because I'm okay. I'm gonna do it here." No, how much no, for this article and how much for this article? And I'm like, so now we're kind of realizing that maybe we want to be more so on the management and artist development side because that's essentially what we've become. So it's like we have found out with working with some of the newest, like our newer clients. Okay, we're going to probably end up doing content creation because that's what I like. So mm-hmm. even if it's not like my title as a publicist, right, it's I actually like directing music videos and I like making treatments and I like coming up with that side of things. And then Africa's a control freak. <laughs> so she <laughs> in many ways always ends up playing a management role, right? And so then, kind of you, you're more the creative. She's more of the business. So yeah. Fill each other's gaps. Yes. So uh, now it's like, okay, so are we going to transition this into like a management company, maybe an artist marketing company? We don't necessarily know, but these are like conversations that we've been having for like the past month. It's like, okay, we don't want to just be like known as the girls who get people articles. Like, no, like we want to be known as people who actually like bring up people that you can bet your money on. So we don't know if we're going to go with the whole record label avenue or management company avenue or even an agency. We're just really trying to like figure that out right now. But I mean, what I'm learning is whatever it's supposed to be, it's kind of going to work its way because we have a strange way of just telling people our ideas and they're like, okay, like great. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, we really got to figure out exactly what we want it to be and just putting it into like the universe and being like, okay, well, this is what we want to do. And this is what we're doing. Cause that's honestly how it really was. Mm-hmm. I literally would tell people like, Oh yeah, I do this. And then they would give me the opportunity to well, when it. you guys blow up, do you remember I was, you were here. I gave yeah, you the exactly. first no, podcast. You're, you're really my first interview ever. So <laughs> you will be remembered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go, go back. Cause like how we met, right. How we met was through Burger Rock media through Irma with every, with all of the social unrest that's going on, this 
this heaviness. It's so hard to just describe because there's just so much heaviness just happening. And then we're recording this literally the day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away, which yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was just a whole, that's just been a whole other thing, but we decided that we wanted to kind of put together a, a space where people could discuss their frustrations, how we can help each other, how we can support each other within the totality of the BIPOC community, right? Yeah. And beyond, actually, there was there wasn't just the BIPOC community, but it was mostly that. So Irma had introduced us. Be, that's how we met because we had a two forums to discuss how we can support each other. What can we do? What questions are coming up? And it was really lovely to hear because the ground rules that we set were there isn't a stupid question. And if you're not sure if you should ask the question, here is where you want to ask that question. Like that question probably needs to be asked. And this is where you ask it because we were trying to really have a non-judgmental space. And if you were, if you were in these forums, it was because you really did want to learn how you can do a part, how you could be a better advocate, not just like for each other. Yeah. Because so much of our country wants us to be torn apart. They want communities of color to be pitted against, yeah. against each other because they know if we all come together, that's it. Like we could, we could literally change everything if we all came together, if we all came to vote, if we all, that was really where, how we met and how we came together. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. And I've gotten to know you in Africa a little bit and how were you feeling when we were approaching these forums? Where do you feel like was a really good conversation in regard and where you think we, right, where we could have kind of picked up the slack a little bit more? I definitely think the forums were needed. Um, and I'm always kind of torn, right? Because I feel like I did, like for my like own personal self, like I had to do so much research and come to so many epiphanies and self-reflections and terms to understand the black struggle. Right. And I'm saying this as a black person myself. Yeah. Um, and now like, I have no shame in saying like prior to me learning what I like literally like went out of my way to learn and doing my research, I definitely probably was one an elitist and two had the views that like my parents probably have and just like really, in my opinion, most foreigners and immigrants have of African-Americans. So I was kind of torn between like I did the research to understand what's going on to how to approach it. So I shouldn't have to teach anyone like everyone should do their own research. Right. But then there's the other side where it's like, what if I'm supposed to be that person's form of research? You know, because like for me, my research was literally like literally reading books and asking people questions and stuff. So before even going into like our forums that we had, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, like here I am having to teach like white people not to be racist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I also thought like, you know, what if I'm, cause I always talk about how like, I think sometimes now it's my duty to help clear the narrative and promote a positive narrative. And even if it's just help provide understanding, I feel like it's my duty. So I now understand and think that like I can't pick and choose when I want to like have that be my duty, you know, mm -hmm. but as a black person and I definitely, especially for African-Americans, I know 
they are a hundred percent more annoyed of it's always like, oh my God, here I am having to like teach a white person something, you know? But it wasn't until after our second meeting that um so someone reached out to me and she was like essentially that like, I'm Dominican and Oh yeah, she told me she had reached out oh, to you. Yeah, she reached out to me. She's yeah. like, I'm Dominican and I don't know if I should like say I'm black or not. And I'm like, that's when I was like, people actually have to like you sometimes you may just have to be that person someone asks a question to. And I was like more than happy to provide that understanding because at the end of the day, that could be an internal struggle for some people. Mm-hmm. And you know, where do I fit in this society when I'm not really this, but I'm not really this, and I have no one to tell me without judging me, you know, what I, where, where I put like where I stand or even get to express my thoughts. So I think we definitely did an amazing job of like providing that opportunity. I really do wish that we could have had more time to talk about the Latino struggle and whether it was, we were, I don't know if we should have another meeting or whatever it was, but I really wish we had more time to talk about that because like you said, I often feel like it's in America, it's always so black and white, right? that we completely ignore that there's all these other groups that are like struggling. And I, I definitely think that's like a function of like white supremacy where it's like, okay, let's just put an emphasis on like the black people, you know, Mm -hmm. because obviously there are like, you know, as far as like the media or like the police killings go, there are more black people being killed in public, Mm -hmm. but like the, what's being like shown isn't like, you know, what's happening to you know, our like sisters and brothers at the border or even what's happening to our hijabis, you know, yeah. and like, our Muslim brothers and sisters, which now, because I ha- in college, I have a really good friend and she used to also join the cause and she's um like Muslim and she's um Iraqi. And she's really like educated me on like her struggles. And that led me to like, just do more research on just the history of how like Muslims and Muslim Americans and just people of Middle Eastern descent in general are like treated in America, which is like another huge problem that no one even like thinks about. Yeah. On both spectrums, black and, and white. Especially after 9-11. Yes. Especially after 9-11. Exactly. The animosity. And it's like grew. And, and everybody I, it though. Yeah. No, I mean it's I appreciate you saying that, to be perfectly honest, because that's like how I've felt a lot of times. I have been somebody who I always want to support. And I, I've i had these conversations with many of my Black friends where I'm like, we get left out of the conversation until it comes to like border stuff. I'm not like, yes, I grew up in a border town. I grew up in San Diego, but I'm not an immigrant. I'm a second generation Mexican-American. But our struggles always get left out too. Like even just based on my last name alone, I know that people have impressions. I've had people not know that I was in the room, didn't know who I was based on my last name saying I probably don't even speak English, knowing nothing about me, right? Making these assumptions about me. And then you have, like you said, like Muslim, your our Muslim brothers and sisters who after 9-11, have experienced this tremendous surge of animosity, of racism, and racism and sort of... And also violence, too, though. Oh, Um, yeah. The statistics for, like, the violence that has happened, like, since 9-11, especially to women. And then with the coronavirus, the violence that has increased 
within Asian Americans. Asian communities, yeah. Like it's, it's like as soon as something happens, we want to blame an entire community mm-hmm. for something that and it prevents the groups from banding together. Because definitely, the, obviously, considering the history, African Americans are more focused on like their struggle too. But if you actually look into the research and the, and the statistics, they're off by a few percentages. Like the amount of Latino like people that are mass incarcerated is like, let's say like, it'll be like 43%. And then for black people, it'll be like 49. So they're still impacted in the same ways. And these communities always live like within like a few mile of each, like a few miles of each other. So definitely I wish that we I mean, we still can. Yeah, I was about to say, we can still do that. Maybe we have one very specific, like hyper-focused, right? Yeah. Because you even have like the Sikh, I'm not sure if I'm saying it, the Sikh community. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that wear like the turbans and stuff and let their hair grow. Yeah, so they are the ones, like they are also being targeted. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they're not Muslim. And they're being targeted because people want to, they want to group it together. So there's so much opportunity for us to learn, right? There's so much... And it's great having these conversations. You can't expect, and, and I get what you're like, what people say, like black people are tired of educating, right? Mm-hmm. So you also have to be able to crack open a book, research, do your own thing. You cannot always expect like something to happen and go to your like one or two black friends and say, tell me about this. How yeah. many other people are going to them and saying, tell me about this? Yeah. People are tired, right? When stuff happens within our community, I'm very fortunate that I have a very vast community that spans across the board but I also have people like when something happens saying well this is happening what do you think and I'm like <sighs> like you say that deep breath and you're like I don't think anything you know and sometimes it's like for me what I'm realizing is I just may have gotten to the point of like desensitization and especially with this coronavirus because first it was George Floyd you know which essentially sparked our conversations then, like, right after George Floyd, it was like, Breonna Taylor. How many things are going to happen? So I, honestly, I've 100%, like, tapped out. I don't I don't watch the news anymore. Like, I, I used muted, to consider myself a news junkie, and I can't watch it anymore. I I've muted certain words on Twitter. As far as, like, like coronavirus, I literally muted the word coronavirus, muted the word death. At some point, I, like, muted the word Black Lives Matter. Like, because I'm just like, bro, at what point can we, Can I mean, can I just exist, you know? And a, a lot of, but I guess this is, like, a part of adulting, right? Because a lot of my life, I've just been able to exist, like, with mm-hmm. no burdens and no cares in the world. And like you mentioned earlier, my family doesn't have the legacy of like slavery attached. So I most of the times don't think about my skin color. Like I don't care. So now it's like, I'm at a point in my life where I'm understanding like my responsibilities, especially in the position that I've been blessed to be in and with the people I interact with, where it's like, okay, I'm the person that's been placed here to speak up for these people um, and if I don't, then who will, you know? Yeah. But it's also I like, sometimes I don't exist. <laughs> yeah. I appreciated the forums because I got to hear your, like yours in Africa stories about being immigrants to this country. But then you also hear everybody has a different story. Yeah. Everybody has a different experience. Yeah. 
my experience is not somebody else's, you know, second gen Mexican American Chicana Latina experience, whatever you want to say, right? Just like somebody who my one of my best friends, Courtney, grew up, her dad was an attorney. And she grew up in a very white area and she's black. So she grew up very affluent, very in Florida. And her experience is very different than my friends that grew up in Texas, right? It's very, very like everybody has a different experience. And it's always the important thing is to hear, not to just assume you, you, if you know one person, their experience is going to be everybody else's experience. Cause I think that's sometimes what happens, you know, one person. And yeah. I actually recently heard this on a live that I was um listening to and they're like, Oh, this never affected me. And I'm like, just because it doesn't affect you does not mean it doesn't affect somebody else. Yeah. And we are so like our country is so like, what's in it for me? What about me? We forget about the collective, right? We're just so focused on the personal. We forget about the collective, but ultimately what binds us together and what makes us stronger is the collective. Because if you are, if you're constantly about your individuality with no concern of the collective, what's that? That's what's happening now. And yeah. And that's how nations fall because everyone's thinking about like themselves instead of what's happening for everyone. But I mean, I had a I had a professor that would always say it all comes back to capitalism, which is what we essentially talked about in the beginning, thinking that like you literally have to work to live, you know, like you have to work all the time. So it sometimes it's like, okay, well, what's in it for me if I decide to take off this day from work to talk about these issues, you know, but it's all a system that has allowed these people to get away with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um I wrote for one of my theses in school about how Black Lives Matter and like anti-Muslim sentiment are essentially the same struggle. Because just like um, in the comparison I used was how Trayvon Martin got murdered and massacred for wearing a hoodie. But there was also a, um, a, sh- a Sikh in Texas that around 9-11, he was hunted too, just like Trayvon Martin was. And he was murdered because he was mistaken for a Muslim. Which shouldn't have mattered anyway. Which shouldn't have happened anyways, yeah. but he still was murdered for that. And that's essentially what happened to Trayvon Martin. He was mistaken for a criminal and he was hunted down and murdered too. And um, in my thesis... Just like Ahmaud Arbery. Exactly. In my thesis, I just talked about how there are many cross comparisons and in order for us to move forward as as a collective like these comparisons have to be realized because they're too often where it's like people are comparing tragedies right yeah well this isn't this so I don't think it's that bad or like this isn't this so I don't think it's that bad mm-hmm. and I think that's often the case for immigrant communities uh, at least speaking to my community it's like my parents are often like will I survive the war so like I don't think that their life is that bad you know and it, I don't think that in a place of humanity and just to have empathy and to understand what other people are going through, there's no room to compare tragedies ever, you know, like just because you weren't like stabbed and killed, like you're not gonna be like, Oh, well I was shot. So I don't really care if this person got stabbed, like fuck them, you know? Mm -hmm. So I definitely am trying to find like a world where it's okay. Where can we be empathetic? 
and still have and still allow each culture to like be themselves but understand that like okay if this is happening to my brother it's happening to me period because if they, if they can get away with this they're gonna the next step is them trying it with me you know oh my god that's that is the whole thing right it's each level it keeps leveling up level well, it doesn't affect me so you don't care oh wait it affect, oh, but it, they, they deserved it. Oh, wait. But, and then all of a sudden it comes to you and you're like, wait, what happened? But you, each of these steps, you have the opportunity mm-hmm. to, so- to speak up and to use your voice. And right now, especially like what I said, this, we're recording this the day after, you know, RGB dies. And I feel like her final, like her dying words. It's like this whole thing is just so crazy and ridiculous. The fact that four years ago, Merrick Garland was not given a confirmation hearing because you have like the eternal man, Mitch McConnell, saying (laughs) that you need to let the people decide. But now he's like, oh, they're going to get a confirmation hearing, whoever Trump picks. It's like this whole thing. But I don't know if you've heard of there's like a ground swelling of people within minority communities about like we can't vote. Voting is not going to help us. We need to just not vote. Right. So to me, that's frustrating. And I say when I hear it from other Latinos, I get pissed. I'm like, I know that this is not perfect. I know that Biden Harris was not who you wanted, but that's who we have. And now with things will only get progressively worse with Trump because he's stacking the courts against us. Who do you think picks judges? So to not vote, you're allowing the system to continue to be stacked against you. And I don't think, because I actually got in a heated conversation last week with a good friend of mine about this. And it's like, okay, no voting, right? You don't, let's say you don't vote. The impact of Donald Trump, whether you're Republican or Democrat, is long lasting to the point where like that's going to control our international relationships. Mm-hmm. Here I am as a Liberian and because I have this American passport, I cannot go to Liberia right now because of international relationships. So and there are the people that are like, oh, he just keeps it real. And I would rather a person that like speaks up than lies to my face and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't think you understand that there is power in being politically correct and it just kind of goes back to like the respect thing if people can respect you enough then that's just what it is and people don't our country is not respected right now america is like number like 52 right now on the passport list the passport that used to be so powerful is useless now Mm -hmm. and as someone one who is a foreigner myself and two just someone who likes to travel I would like to travel. That's all it comes down to. And there are countries, especially European countries now that are literally refusing to like affiliate with us. And they're like, oh yeah, everyone else can come into our country despite of the pandemic going on, but Americans, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's the point it's coming to. And like, who wants to go through that? You know, like, and all the courts, it's just so much that I think people don't realize it comes down to like, oh, who's keeping it real? And oh, this doesn't like, count and blah 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 it's like dude what's gonna happen is you're gonna something and something in your life is gonna be impacted by the fact that you didn't vote and you may not realize it now but you're gonna realize it down the line when you realize i didn't vote and i could have switched this yeah so i'll say that because i have a colleague that actually voted for trump and 
there was like some like law that was basically counterproductive for him. And now he feels like a dumbass. And it's like, so because, <laughs> cause, like, cause four years ago you thought this, this has now impacted you. So I definitely think that everyone is going to feel for their decision. Yeah, I agree with you. Where do you hope to see you in Africa and FTA? And then like, what would you love? Like, ideally, if you close your eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, in five years, this is what I want to see FTA Gallery as. What would you like to see? And what would you envision that as? Um, So I definitely want to be in the film space. Issa Rae is like, I am a 100% fangirl of her. Like, me too, me too. As many like celebrities and like just cool people I've hung around and like come across like, that's one person where I'm like, oh my gosh, like someone please get me in contact with Easter Ray, like get me in the room with Easter Ray. Like I will be her intern. Like <laughs> I just want to work with her in any capacity whatsoever. Okay. But, so if you do or no, once you do, you need to get her here so we can. <laughs> I think she's like so down to earth and so cool. And I know that someone like, I you know, at the end of her show, she has the wind down. It was just, yes. saying, just saying. Exactly. Every show, she has a wind down. <laughs> yes. No, I'm just trying to find any way to like get in contact with Issa. Issa, if you're listening, girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like, I want to get into the film space. That's where like the visual anthropology comes in. So like finding ways to portray these stories. Because while I have gotten some opportunities to do that in the music and fashion space. I think that may be like my ultimate destiny in a way is to be able to share these stories of the lives that not only I've lived, but that I've gotten to experience by the people I've met and the stories that I've heard, um, be able to showcase them. And so definitely we plan on getting to film. And I think FTA, as far as like the PR management goes, definitely by 2021, 2022, gonna have to hire some employees because so my time isn't like 100% like dedicated to doing PR. And in 2021, we do plan on launching the Colored Club. So like the business is FTA Gallery and the Colored Club Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, I because I felt like the word enterprise gives us room to do anything, anything. we want to do, right? So the Colored Club, I always planned for it to be the magazine aspect. So while Africa was always a part of this PR world, we were going to take our clients and give them the ultimate platform to be showcased as. And the color club is like Vogue meets Essence. So it's going to be mostly editorials, all of colored folk. And that's why it's called the color club. And I like when I, when we launched this in February, I want it to be like as creative as it is controversial. Cause essentially from what we've experienced in the past few years, it's, you know, like colors only. I will like, obviously the magazine will not be like limited to only like <laughs> black and brown people, but it's like, I wanted to create a sense of pride and like, okay, this is our space. Cause even now like Vogue is coming out with like, oh, we didn't realize that like wow, some of our only black covers were only Beyonce. Like, you know, so yeah. I, I want there to be a space in a platform that's not only respected, but that like, people are actually anticipated into, you know, like I like I want to get a cover of the color club and to once again, like showcase the visuals of people that look like you and I in a respected light and in a way 
that is she really 100 percent showcases the beauty because there are many times where like my model friends that are black they have to either do their own hair on set or like they have to get their own hairstylist because these magazines and these platforms don't hire people that do their hair or like certain visions don't make sense because like these white creative directors aren't doing things that resonate with people that look like them or if it, if they do it's like over it's like tacky it's like okay well let's make this about like racism versus literally letting it be about like being creative and being an artist so that's the like two year the color club is a two-year goal and film is like the five-year goal where it's like okay i'm dived in like i've i'm in here maybe have a show have a series or whatever and like we're like showcasing these stories and like the lives that we've gotten to experience well, I don't doubt that will happen because I just I just feel it from you. So um, yeah. what is one thing that will that can make you happy no matter what that can make you smile? You could be like feeling like total shit, but mm-hmm. this will turn everything around. My dog, Paris. Oh, I love yes, that. Cause I, my dog does that for me, too. I haven't seen Paris since I moved to L.A., but I literally I'm seeing it every day. Like I need to go see Paris. I need to go see Paris. I'm about to actually show you her Paris. She's a German Shepherd Wolf Mix dog, and I've had her for she's Paris is like nine now. She's turning nine, and she's like the sweetest girl. She's fluffy. Oh my god, really? I have so many pictures of her. I can only <laughs> show you. She's fluffy. She's well, pull like, up the picture, and let me ask you one last question. Yes. While you're pulling up the picture. Red, like we start with the wine and we end with the wine. That's how we bookend the whole interview. So what is your favorite type of wine, red, white or rosé? And do you have a specific type? My favorite type of wine is Chardonnay. And okay, so it's this cheap ass Chardonnay that's at Whole Foods. It's $3. It's called Three Wishes. And that Chardonnay does what it is supposed to do. Okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> sometimes you drink wine and it's it, sometimes wine is just like a class thing, like, huh, bougie. Yeah. And I it's feel like, like at the beginning. Exactly. Like if you're drinking, it's to feel drunk. Am I right? Like, or to feel buzzed, to feel tipsy, to feel sexy, to feel good. So I'm like, okay, I found this wine, $3 at Whole Foods. And one glass, you are like smiling, you're bubbly, you're ready to have a good night off of this one glass. Damn. And I put on this wine, they are like, damn, this hit. Like, you know, so <laughs> definitely when I, if you come to LA or when I come to San Diego, I will bring you a bottle of three wishes. All right. Three dollars. That sounds good. Fifi, you are the best. I'm, lo- I'm waiting to, I'll, you can show me the picture of the dog because nobody else is going to see it but me. <laughs> But I appreciate, oh, so cute. Okay, super cute. Uh, Look at that dog is smiling. Um, I appreciate you sitting down with me. I'm so glad I got to be your first experience in this, like this type of forum. I appreciate you for inviting me. I was like, am I cool enough for this? <laughs> Girl, I told you, like, I knew when I started talking to you in Africa. I definitely want them to come on. I definitely just like as I was hearing parts and pieces of your story. I knew that I wanted you to come on and, you know, we've had the opportunity to work together in a, in this, this way that is so important, that is so important for so many that I just wanted to bring some of that here, you know? Thank you. 
so much. I love. I have loved this. You are awesome. And until next time, mi gente. Yes. Bisous. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Man podcast. For more information on Fifi, please see the show notes for links to her social media accounts. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese Man on our website, thewineandcheesemanpodcast.com. There you will find the names of the wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on Instagram at thewineandcheesemen.com. Facebook and LinkedIn at the Wine and Cheese Med Podcast. Now we even have a Twitter and it is at Wine Cheese POD. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheese Med, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five star ratings are always appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos. <laughs>